Well, the song mentioned uh, the food of God's word. Our food this morning is 1 Kings 3. We'll be looking at 1 Kings 3, verses 1 through 15. Uh, we mentioned that uh, youth camp is going on right now, so that's where uh, Pastor Chance is. Um, so we're looking forward to having him come back and all the youth. Um, but in the meantime, I'm thankful for the opportunity to bring you the word this morning. And one of the interesting things we discovered um, that God in his sovereignty planned Somehow, some way, without us knowing, apparently, uh, one of the passages that was preached at camp is this passage. That was not our plan, but it means if you had youth who went to camp, uh, you, you're going to be looking at uh, the passage that they looked at. So that could be a good, good thing for you to be able to discuss um, when they get back. All right, so let's read. This is, a, this is a lengthy passage, so hopefully you have it in front of you so you can follow along. We're going to read 1 Kings 3, verses 1 through 15. God's word reads, <clears throat> Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked for this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. So that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Lord, this is your word, and now as we, uh, as we take a closer look at it, as we plumb the depths of this passage, Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to approach you with humble, teachable hearts, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, Lord, that may, we would maybe even be challenged. And Lord, that in all of this, you would be exalted. So glorify yourself now as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Charles Spurgeon has said that no man can progress in grace if he, for, if he forsakes prayer. And that nothing brings such leanness into a man's soul as lack of prayer. Spurgeon calls prayer our natural duty as creatures to our creator. And scripture makes it clear that prayer is commanded and therefore expected of every believer. In Colossians 4, Paul says to continue steadfastly in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says to pray without ceasing. And in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable to the effect that people ought always to pray. Why then is it such a struggle to pray? In his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, author Donald Whitney identifies three main reasons that we do not pray as we should. His first reason is lack of discipline. We live undisciplined lives, so we don't have the time for prayer. But what that really means is that we're not convinced of the, pray of the importance of prayer. Because if we were, then we would make the time, would we not? Second, Whitney says we sometimes don't feel near to God. And indeed, one of the reasons that God gives us trials is to show us our need for him and to draw us toward him. But we need to obey his command and seek his face whether we feel like it or not. And the third reason that Whitney offers that we don't pray is because sometimes we don't think it will accomplish anything. We become discouraged because God hasn't answered certain prayers the way we wanted him to. But this shows a lack of understanding of why we pray. This morning, we're going to look at one of the great prayers in the Bible. It's during the early part of Solomon's reign as king. And it's a point at which everything's going well. He's just secured the throne. He's king over this great nation. And this is the kind of situation where many of us would probably become lax in our prayer. We're sailing along. Life is great. And we start to lose the urgency to pray. We start to depend on ourselves instead of God. But not Solomon. Even at this great high point, he seeks the Lord out in prayer. As we study Solomon's prayer, we're going to learn four key truths about prayer to help us to be more faithful in our own prayer lives. Four truths that will change how you look at prayer and transform your prayer life. First is the motive of prayer. So let's read again from the... 1 Kings 3, starting at the beginning, verses 1 through 4. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now notice in verse 3 that it says that Solomon loved the Lord. That's why he went to worship. That's why he went to offer sacrifices to the Lord and to seek his help, to seek his blessing as he begins his reign as king of Israel. So the first key truth about prayer is that the motive of prayer is love. The motive of prayer is love, our love for God. You see, if we come to God only when we want something from him, then we're just treating him like a genie who will grant our wishes. 
And our motive is self-interest. What can I get out of God? If we just come to him when the world has fallen out from under our feet, then we're treating him like a parachute, which is only to be deployed when there's an emergency. And if we come to him merely out of legalism, because every Christian should be praying, right? Then we're just going through the motions when our hearts are far from him. Prayer needs to be God-focused, not self-focused. And our motive should be our love for God, not our love for ourselves. This is where our prayers need to start. Now, what is prayer? At its simplest, we can define it maybe as personal communication with God. Human beings are communicative creatures, aren't we? We've not been created to live in isolation, but to live in relationships, to communicate with one another and to communicate with our creator. We like to communicate with our friends. We, we enjoy fellowshipping and having conversation with our spouses or our children. But let me ask, how much of a relationship do you have with someone if you don't communicate with that person? Can I truthfully say that I love my wife if I don't care to talk to her or to hear what she says? Then what about the one whom I'm to love above all others with, with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind? You see, if prayer is about communicating with him, then I'm not focused on what I get out of it. I'm not fixated on him granting my petitions, but I'm motivated by the desire to communicate with him, to have fellowship with the God of the universe. And understanding this will completely change the way you look at prayer. It's about him, not us. But wait, did Solomon really love the Lord? We can't help but notice that verse 3 says, after it says that he loved the Lord, it says, only he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And verse 4 adds that the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. So there's an example. And this seems to be a criticism, right? Remember, this is after the tabernacle in the wilderness, right, that, that, that Moses built, or they built under Moses, but it was before the temple was constructed. The worship situation was kind of complicated at this time. Let me explain. We're going to have to take a little bit of an aside here. Uh, so first, what are the high places? High places were often exactly that. They were high places on hilltops or on mountaintops, and they were used for pagan worship. Now, they weren't actually always high. Sometimes they were in the centers of villages or in valleys, which has led some Bible scholars to suggest that maybe country shrine would be a better translation than high place. Nonetheless, the Holman Bible Dictionary describes what a typical high place or country shrine would be like. Here's what they say. The average high place would have an altar, a carved wooden pole that depicted the female goddess of fertility, Asherah, a stone pillar symbolizing the male deity, other idols, and some type of building. At these places of worship, the people sacrificed animals, or in some places they sacrificed children. They burned incense to their gods, they prayed, they ate sacrificial meals, and were involved with male or female cultic prostitutes. That's what a high place was. The simplest high place might just have an altar. Now, when Israel entered the land of Canaan, they were commanded to destroy these kinds of places. Numbers 33.52 says, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, 
and demolish all their high places. After they subdued the promised land, Israel set up the tabernacle and the ark in Shiloh for worship. Joshua 18.1, for example, says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. So the people of Israel would come to Shiloh to offer their sacrifices. This is where 1 Samuel says Hannah left young Samuel, right, to serve the Lord under Eli the high priest. It was at Shiloh. But Shiloh would be destroyed by the Philistines. As 1 Samuel 4 records, after losing a battle to the Philistines, Israel thought they would surely win if only they brought the ark with them. So they had Eli's worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas, bring the ark from Shiloh with them, and they marched into battle with the ark. Well, it didn't work like the magical charm they hoped it would be. The Philistines routed them, and they captured the ark at Ebenezer. And among those killed were Eli's sons. And you'll remember that when news came to Eli at Shiloh, he fell over and broke his neck and died. And thus ended the use of Shiloh as the worship center of Israel. So what did worship look like after that? Well, some of the high places actually came to be used for the worship of Yahweh. We read in 1 Samuel 9 that Samuel led the sacrificial worship at a high place in a certain city. A few chapters later, he anoints Saul as king and makes offerings in Gilgal. And when David became king, he took the Ark of the Covenant and he moved it to Jerusalem. But the tabernacle and the bronze altar were kept at a different location. They were, in fact, at a high place in Gibeon, which is what our passage is talking about, the great high place at Gibeon. That's where David put the tabernacle and the bronze altar. Our, and that, that's what our passage calls the great high place. Uh, First Chronicles 16:37 describes what David did. It says, David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark, that's in Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 39 of First Chronicles 16, he left Zadok the priest and his brothers the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon. So basically there were two tabernacles during David's reign, and Solomon inherited this situation. The Ark of the Covenant was in a tent in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle from Moses' time and the altar were in Gibeon at this high place that used to be a pagan center of worship. More detail is found uh, in, uh, in about the event that we're looking at. If you turn a couple books forward to 2 Chronicles 1, it describes the same event we're looking at where Solomon comes to worship the Lord. But there's a few more details here. So 2 Chronicles 1, if you turn there with me, we'll look at verses 2 to 6. Again, it's a little bit lengthy, so you probably want to turn there to follow. 2 Chronicles 1, 2 to 6. It says, Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. Parentheses then tell us, but David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. So see, it's summarizing that situation. The, the ark was in Jerusalem in a tent David had prepared, but the tabernacle of Moses and the altar, bronze altar were in Gibeon. And that's what it says in verse 5. 
Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out, and Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. So what was the issue with the high places? There were really two issues with the high places. First, it was against the principle of central worship at a place that God would pick. <coughs> In Deuteronomy 12, 10, God says this to Israel. Deuteronomy 12, 10. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present. So, so it was going to be a central place that he would identify. That's where worship was supposed to happen. And then in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 12, he says, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. Don't just do it anywhere, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. So that was the first issue with the high places. The second issue, obviously, was that most of these high places were linked to pagan worship at some point. And that was, therefore, a temptation for people to mix pagan worship with worshiping Yahweh. But in this short-term temporary situation, these high places were dedicated to the one true God. Presumably, any pagan altars or elements of any kind were destroyed, and the site was cleansed and rededicated to Yahweh. So we go back to verse 3 in 1 Kings 3, where it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. But doesn't this sound like a bad thing? It sounds like Solomon was faithful like David, except for this issue, right? Only he did this. But isn't that the situation David had that Solomon inherited? Some commentators argue that the verse does not criticize Solomon, but it's indicating the incompleteness of the worship until the temple would be built. You'll notice that verse 2 says, The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. That's not necessarily critical. It might, it's, it, some people think that's just a very matter-of-fact statement. This is what's happening, and this is why. And the fact that God seemingly accepts Solomon's worship by speaking to him in the vision or the dream and then granting his prayer can be seen as support for their argument that God was accepting of it. On the other hand, God's grace is never deserved. And it's possible that he just graciously responded to Solomon anyway just as he allowed David to establish that worship system. You'll notice that after God answers Solomon, verse 15 says that Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream, and then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So then he goes and he leaves Gibeon and goes to Jerusalem, where the Ark is, and he offers burnt offerings and peace offerings there. This prompts commentator Philip Ryken to write, Presumably, this is where the king and his people should have been worshiping all along, at the tent of meeting in Jerusalem. Instead, they started out worshiping at the high places. This is an ominous foreshadowing of their coming apostasy, for both Solomon and his people would later go back to the high places and commit idolatry. And in fact, if you keep reading the story of David, you'll, you'll remember that toward the end of his reign, he sinfully conducts a census. And then God had him buy a threshing floor from a man named Ornan, and the threshing floor was in Jerusalem. 
David built an altar there, and after he built it, it's clear in the scripture that he believed that was where God wanted him to worship, and that's where God wanted the worship to take place. So Solomon would actually build the temple there. It's at that place that David bought in Jerusalem. But for now, at this time, there were two prominent tabernacles. As I said, the situation was complicated. I think what the writer is doing here is foreshadowing what is to come. He isn't criticizing Solomon's actions during this event, but he's alluding to the future downfall and continued use of the high places after the temple's built. But during these events, before the temple, the author's making the point that Solomon loved the Lord. Despite his future failures, despite that he was ultimately not as faithful as his father, he loved the Lord. In fact, according to one commentator, this is the only verse in the entire Old Testament that states of an individual man that he loved the Lord. And that's what drove Solomon to prayer. That's what should drive us to prayer. Pastor John MacArthur describes prayer as an internal compulsion born out of love for and dependence on our Heavenly Father. And compulsion has this idea that we're, that we're drawn to it, that we, we long to do it, that we have to do it, right? It's not because it's a rule to be followed, but I'm compelled out of my love for God to go to Him in prayer. How often do you communicate with your friends? In speech, text message, email, phone? How about your spouse? Every day? Several times a day? Many times a day? But what about God? What about your creator and savior? How much do you communicate with him? MacArthur continues with a sobering warning. He says that lack of prayer doesn't mean merely that we are disobedient. It is also an indicator that our love for God has grown cold. Let's be honest with ourselves and ask the question, why don't I pray? It's because I'm infatuated with myself rather than with God. I'm too busy and too self-dependent. And ask the question also, why do I pray? We tend to make our prayer about our circumstances and not about God. When things are going well, we feel like we don't really need God, so we're doing fine and our prayers wane. But as soon as circumstances change, as soon as things get difficult, we're reminded suddenly that we need his grace and suddenly we become fervent in prayer, for a little bit at least. Isn't this just like Israel in the Old Testament? Just like the cycle of the judges, God would bless Israel. Israel would then forget God, and then he would discipline her by bringing trials, and she would turn back to him for a while until he rescued her, and then she would forget him again, and the cycle would go over and over. Unfortunately, that's often how we are in prayer. When things are good, we forget the Lord. He brings a trial, and now we are driven to him in prayer. Things get better and we forget him again, and so on. But we need to go to the Lord in prayer for him because we want to commune with him, not because of circumstances. Because we recognize his grace and mercy every day and we love him and we want to thank him and we want to praise him, not because we just want to ask him for something. Do you love him? Then you will want to be with him. You will want to listen to him and talk to him, whether the circumstances in your life are difficult or whether it's smooth sailing. Listen to the zeal in the words of the psalmist from Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land 
where there is no water. So first we see that the motive of prayer is love. Like Solomon, we come to God in prayer because we love him. Now after the sacrifices are offered, God shows his acceptance by revealing himself to Solomon in a dream. We pick up in verse 5. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. What an amazing statement. The God of the universe comes and he says, Ask what I shall give you. What an amazing test of Solomon's character. And what an amazing demonstration of God's grace. And so this takes us to our second key truth about prayer, which is that the foundation of prayer is grace. The foundation of prayer is God's grace. Look at what Solomon prays, starting in verse 6. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Solomon is acknowledging God, isn't he? He's giving God the credit. First, he acknowledges God's sovereignty and faithfulness to his father David, and then to himself now. God showed great and steadfast love to David, he said, but then God's the one who's now chosen Solomon and made him king. He says, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. He knows that it's God's doing. God has put him here. As Daniel 2.21 says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. It's the Lord's doing. Part of God's faithfulness to David is the establishment of his son Solomon as king after him. God has raised up Solomon as part of his promises in the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, God said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And so Solomon Solomon being king is all God's grace. It's his choice. He's put him there. There were other sons of David who could have been king. One of them tried to take the throne. And remember, Solomon was born from Bathsheba. And that was not a good situation, right? David infamously stole her through adultery and murder. And yet, God chose Solomon anyway. Not because of anything good in Solomon, but because of God's grace. Second, Solomon recognizes God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 8, he talks about God's people whom God has chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. This sounds like back in Genesis when God promised to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, that their descendants would become a great nation. And they're described as being as numerous as the dust specks of the earth or the sand of the sea. And here they are. Here's those pe- that people that God promised. Do you recognize God's goodness and faithfulness in your life? If you take just a moment to reflect on his grace, this should surely overflow into prayer. Once, my family was over for a holiday dinner at a house of some relatives of ours who are not believers. But interestingly, out of tradition at these family gatherings, people would 
ask that someone would say grace at this meal, even though pretty much nobody there were believers other than us. Once in a while they'd ask us, but then they'd ask other people too. And, and as someone was praying, saying grace, uh, a couple of people whispered under their breaths to one another, saying something along the lines of this. Why are we thanking God? We should be thanking ourselves for earning the money and cooking the food. Now, wait a minute. Why are we thanking God for our food? He didn't cook the meal. I did. He didn't grow the plants. We got them from the grocery store. Or why do athletes get up there and then praise Jesus if they've played well or won a game? Does it really make sense? Did, he didn't make that basket. He didn't catch that touchdown. I did. But that's a very short-sighted view. Because God gives us everything. He gave us life. He gave us air to breathe, right? He's given us the ability to do our jobs, to earn that money that we use. He's given us the ability to cook, to run, to make that catch for a touchdown or shoot that basket. He's provided the rain and the sunshine for every plant that grows, every plant that we eat or that the animals eat, and then in turn we eat the animals. Colossians 1 says that Jesus holds everything in the universe together. So what part do you think you can claim? What part is due to you on your own without the Lord? God warned Israel of such thinking. In Deuteronomy 8.17, he said, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. It comes from him. But this is what unbelievers do, right? Romans 1 says they don't honor God, they don't give him thanks, they don't see fit to even acknowledge him. And so they deny him and they blind themselves to his grace that is all over. And then they take credit for his blessings. But the truth is that even believers can be like this. Isn't that how we're acting when we're not in prayer? We're not praising him. We're not thanking him. We're not honoring him. We're not acknowledging him. We're not depending on him. And we're not even caring to talk with him. We're, not, we're acting like we're autonomous, like we're doing just fine without him. We can be like little Nebuchadnezzars. Remember him? The great king of Babylon? He certainly thought so. Daniel 4 tells of a time when he looked out over his kingdom from his palace and he said, is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? He took all the credit. He had done all of this by himself according to him. He didn't need God. He wasn't dependent on God. All glory was his. And of course we know what God did to him after that. Another issue is that we can become angry when we're struggling in a trial. We think that we deserve better and our gratitude to God suddenly dries up. Our eyes are shut to his grace. We, when we understand though his holiness and we understand our sinfulness, then we understand what we truly deserve. And if we realize that what we really deserve is to be cast immediately into hell under his wrath for eternity, then we realize that his grace abounds to all people. He gives air and water and sunshine to everyone. And if you're a believer, if you're a believer, then how much more grace you have received. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Despite our rebellion, he opened our eyes to the truth. He's purchased us. He's given us faith and repentance. He's given us new hearts. 
and his spirit has taken up residence in us. He's adopted us as sons and daughters and given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he sits on the throne of grace, which we may approach, and what amazing grace that is, and he hears and answers our prayers. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So look back at your life. See God's grace. See his goodness and his faithfulness. No matter how hard life has been, no matter how much it seems like the, the deck has been stacked against you, you will see his grace shining through. Despite your sin and selfishness, he sent his only begotten son to live the perfect life that you cannot, the life that's counted to you by faith in Christ. And he suffered and died on the cross in your place, and he rose again, defeating sin and death. Read the Bible, page after page of his faithfulness, even when his people fail to be faithful. And so the foundation of prayer is grace. Prayer itself is a grace. God's promises are out of his grace, and he pours out his grace to us through prayer. Oswald Chambers writes that prayer is the exercise of drawing on the grace of God. Prayer is the exercise of drawing on the grace of God. So that's our second point. The foundation of prayer is grace. We come now to the third point about prayer, which is how Solomon approaches God in prayer. The approach of prayer is humility. We'll see this in verses 7 to 9. Some of this we read already. We'll, we'll read it again. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. And although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? He starts off by calling himself but a little child. He's acknowledging that he's young and he's inexperienced. He was probably about 20 years old at this time. And he adds that he doesn't know how to go out or come in. Now, what does this mean? Well, we see similar language in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 1. 2 Chronicles 1.10 says that Solomon said this, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great. And we see similar language in Numbers 27.16, when Moses is speaking about the one who would replace him. Moses said, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. So this is about leading the people. That's what it's about, governing, leading God's people. And Solomon's saying, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to lead a great nation for you, Lord. He's humbled by the awesome responsibility that lies before him. He realizes that he's completely inadequate for the task. He needs God's help. You see, it's only if we're humble that we will even approach God in prayer. After all, it's, isn't it lack of humility that leads to lack of prayer? We think we're fine, that we've got this, and so we don't go to the Lord. But humility drives us to him. We can pray to God no matter where we are and what we're doing, 
but you often read in scriptures that people come to God in prayer with certain poses, right? And we don't want to be legalistic and say, oh yeah, you have to pray in a certain position, certain pose, but often you read in scripture, people are praying on their knees or they're praying with their faces in the dirt, right? And why is that? It's not because that there's this legalistic requirement that we must pray in this particular pose, but it's because that pose is supposed to be an external picture of what's going on in your heart, right? And what kind of heart is that? What kind of heart approaches the sovereign God of the universe? It's a humble heart, right? So it's, 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 showing, it, it, it's showing to God and acknowledging to God that I'm nothing, that I am nothing, and I am coming to you in prayer. It's humility. We come in humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and who know that they can approach God only because of Christ. It's not because of anything inherently good in our hearts or our deeds. It's only grace in Christ. So we approach acknowledging our complete dependence upon him and our complete unworthiness. How did Abraham speak to the angel of Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Christ? In Genesis 18, 27, he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, with great humility. Jacob wrestled with God, but he only prevailed when he was at last humbled, when he recognized his desperate need for God's grace. You remember that he, he clung to God and he would not let go. That's how desperate he was, as he finally realized that he needed God to bless him. And he refused to let go. He was humbled at last. How did Daniel approach God when he prayed in Daniel 9 on behalf of his sinful people? It was after fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. It was humble. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote that a spiritual prayer is a humble prayer. Prayer is the asking of alms which requires humility. The lower the heart descends, our hearts, the lower our hearts descends, the higher the prayer ascends. This is how we should be in prayer, clinging desperately and humbly to God. That's our third key truth. <coughs> Excuse me. The fourth point, our final key truth about prayer is the goal of prayer. The goal of prayer is glory, God's glory. Have you ever thought about being in Solomon's situation? What would you ask if you were in Solomon's situation and God said, ask what you want, what would you say? I dare say most people would probably uh, treat God like a genie. Most people would probably ask for selfish desires to be fulfilled. Endless wealth, long life. How many of us would want to be a famous and wealthy athlete or a musician or actor? Or maybe just not be well known, but maybe just have billions of dollars sitting around at our disposal. And maybe I'd convince myself that I wouldn't be being selfish because if I had that kind of money, I'd give a lot to the church and I'd help out these different ministries. I'd do a lot of good. But then part of me would be counting on that to make my life easy, right? Part of me would be counting on that instead of the Lord. Of all the things I could ask for, is that really the one that would most glorify God? That's what our thinking should be. Not what do I want the most. What would most glorify God? You see, Solomon didn't seek long life and riches. He didn't seek vengeance on his enemies. He sought wisdom. 
And, and why? It wasn't so he could be exalted. He wanted to have wisdom so that he could discern what is right. In other words, he could make correct judgments as king. He had this unbelievable task in front of him, this awesome responsibility of being king over God's people. And he wanted to be able to do it in a way that would glorify God. He wanted to do a good job. He wanted to honor the Lord. And he knew he needed God's help. He needed God's wisdom. And this request pleased God. We read in verse 10, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. I give you what you asked for. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my days, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So he grants him his request and then promises to bless him greatly beyond that with even the things he didn't ask for. What amazing grace. What do you pray for? Not only what, as in what are the things you ask God for, but, but what do you pray for, as in what's the purpose? What's the goal? Like Solomon, ultimately we should be praying for whatever would help us glorify God the most. That's what we should be praying for. If I am sick, surely I'm going to pray for healing. But whether God grants healing or not, there's a way to glorify him in it. So I pray for healing, but even more I pray for wisdom to glorify him no matter what he chooses to do. That's always a good prayer. And that's always something we need. And God promises to grant it. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The context of James is particularly about when we're in the midst of trials, when we're being tested. That is when we most need wisdom, isn't it? When things are hard. And James says that God will not only grant wisdom to us, but that he will give it generously and without reproach. There won't be any reservations, any scolding, or any holding back. He will give us wisdom. He was pleased when Solomon asked for wisdom, and it pleases him when we ask for wisdom. And what is biblical wisdom anyway? Solomon describes it as the ability to discern rightly. Proverbs 9.10 says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So true wisdom begins with fearing the Lord, reverencing the Lord, obeying him. Wisdom is to see reality from God's perspective and to act appropriately. We could say that wisdom enables us to glorify God. And that's the real goal of prayer. Our goal should be to glorify God. By depending on him, by praising him, by trusting him, by thanking him, by asking him, by bringing my heart into accord with his will, and by being the means through which he pours out his grace in granting prayers. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he started with God, with his glory and his will. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
In Gethsemane, he prayed, not as I will, but as you will. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which certainly includes praying, do all to the glory of God. We must shift how we think about prayer. Rather than the goal being to get something we want from God, our goal should be to receive his grace so that we might glorify him. What does prayer accomplish? What is its ultimate purpose? Whatever his answers are to our petitions, our going to him in prayer glorifies him. We go to him in dependence. We go to him acknowledging that we need him and we honor him in that way. That is the goal. The goal of prayer is glory. God's glory, not ours. Charles Spurgeon has said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. So this morning we have seen from Solomon's example four key truths about prayer. We've seen that the motive of prayer is love, love for God. The foundation of prayer is his grace. The approach of prayer is humility. And the goal of prayer is God's glory. So remember these truths. Remind yourself of them and be much in prayer. Donald Whitley encourages us with these words. He says, if you are discouraged by the command to pray because you feel like you don't know how to pray well, the fact that prayer is learned should give you hope. No matter how weak or strong your prayer life is right now, you can learn to grow even stronger. The best way to learn how to pray is to pray. Communicate with your Lord and Savior. Pour out your heart to him. And don't worry if you stumble or you lack eloquence because it's not about you. It's about him. And your earnest, honest prayers are like a pleasing aroma, the sweet smell of incense to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do hear our prayers, Lord, that, that in Jesus we can come to you and that you answer our prayers, Lord. But we pray as we've looked at this, uh, at this example from Solomon, Lord, that it would help us to think rightly about prayer and not to be coming to you as if you're some kind of genie to grant whatever we want or whatever we think we need, Lord, but that we would always be seeking to glorify you and to be uh, in accord with your will. That even if we don't understand why you're not answering certain prayers, Lord, that we would trust you because that glorifies you as well. And so, Lord, may we go to you in prayer because we love you, and may our goal in it all be to glorify you. So, Lord, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please stand if you're able for...